Hi, folks. Thanks for listening. And this week's classic episode, what's one of Paulie's favourites? It's the Middle East. It's not Lawrence of Arabia. It's the Sheriff of Mecca. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd. But my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the (laughs) cock-ups. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. G'day, folks. Look, now, we've spent the past few weeks in the dark and dusky oak halls of English history. So this week, I'm I'm pretty excited because Paulie's taking us to the wide open spaces of the Arabian Peninsula. Thanks, Mikey. Yeah, I'm pretty excited too because it's nice to get out, <laughs> out and about. And it's, it's uh, when we're in lockdown. For me, I'm particularly pleased to be able to go to this part of the world because, of course, the Arabian Peninsula, um, since ancient times, has been a key, particularly famous, of course, for its trade. Um, the peninsula itself is a patchwork of tribes and fiefdoms, but on the, on the coast, it's got that unrivaled position, hasn't it, but in between India and Africa and the Mediterranean, and it's got those amazing ports. For example, on the east, of course, you've got Muscat and Oman, um, Oman being the home where frankincense um, originally. Can I ask you a question here, mate? And this is a little bit embarrassing as someone who used to go to Bible school. Um, frankincense. I, I know it's one of the gifts from the Little Drummer Boy song. Is is that the whale vomit? Uh, no, the whale vomit is actually ambergris, uh, Mikey. Yeah, what? that's uh, um, yeah, the frankincense. It, it's own. It's a sap, and it only grows in a particular tree. And it only these trees only grow in a very very specific conditions, uh, whereby the sea mist comes in off the Arabian Sea. Um, just at the right time for just long enough um, for these trees to grow. And that's what made Oman so successful. You know, he was able to exploit its position between the Persian Gulf um, at the top and then trade all the way down to the Horn of Africa um, and Zanzibar. Further inland, uh, towards the north, it's a bit more hilly, a bit more rocky. And of course, you're bordering what's now modern-day Jordan. And, and that's probably the most populated part um, of the interior. Uh, that's the people in ancient times who, who were called the Nabataeans. Now, that might not mean much to you, but if I said to you Petra... Ah, yes, Petra, yes, yeah, famous The beautiful place. old stone city of Petra, um, that, will get, that was the old uh, Nabataean capital, um, and that gives you an idea of what we're talking about. Um, and it also gives us an idea of what else... Arabia is famous for is that sort of mysteriousness, isn't it? The mystery behind it. In the middle, you've got the empty quarter, which I don't know if you've ever been there, Mikey, but it makes the Australia's red centre look pretty hospitable. It's a pretty, well, almost dangerous place. Yeah, it is pretty dangerous. You don't want to be stuck in the empty quarter, that's for sure. Um, much rather, you want to be down in the south in those great cities like Aden and Sabah um, on the coast there in their pivotal position between Africa and India. And of course, they Sabah was home, we think, to the legendary Queen of Sheba. 
Well, Sheba's a really interesting figure. I mean, there are stories about her all through the Middle East and North Africa, also known as Bilkis in Arabic. Now, she appears in the Old Testament and you know, Jewish stories and in the Quran, but she's also present in Arab stories that predate Islam by centuries. And one of my favourites is the one where Solomon is told by a bird, a, a literal bird, that there is a queen to the south that worships the sun. So he sends her a letter asking her to worship God. She replies with extravagant gifts and eventually the famous visit. Now Solomon's jinns are worried by this. They fear she will seduce Solomon. Jinns, which is the plural for jinni, they're mythical creatures in Arabic culture. Now look, they've been ascribed varying motives and powers over the centuries. Mm. But shape-shifting seems pretty constant. So look, they're obviously the source of the Western world, genie. Yeah, yes. These jinns convince Solomon that uh, the queen will have hairy legs and the hooves of a mule. So being wise old King Solomon, he's got a plan. He has a layer of glass installed over the floor to his throne. Now, the plan is that she will think it's water and lift her skirts up to walk across it. And when she does, lo and behold, no hooves but hairy legs. And then, according to some stories, Solomon orders the jinns to create some version of a depilatory cream, and then it all gets a bit sketchy. <laughs> Funnily enough, we never actually find her name. Doesn't matter which account you you read, mm. but she does feature more than anybody else in all these legends, as you say, right across the region, uh, Jewish, Islamic, um, Christian Bibles, even Ethiopia, isn't it? I think they're right up till Haile Selassie, they were claiming descendancy back from their black queen of Sheba. Yes, they say that her son, Menelik I, is the first Ethiopian leader. But back to Saba, that whole part of the peninsula that, that in the south, that's what the Romans, of course, called Arabia Felix. Yes. And that's where the sailors made the great breakthrough of being able to use the trade winds to travel and trade directly with India across the ocean rather than having to hug the coastline um, as they had done in previous centuries. Um, on the west, of course, you've got uh, more trade, haven't you, with the Red Sea coast, you've got Egypt, and on the Arabian side, you've got those the great cities, Medina, Jeddah, Mecca, um, and I think it's worth remembering, isn't it, Maggie? Muhammad was a, a camel trader before he became God's prophet. But that whole region, Mikey, that, that whole region, what we want to concentrate on today is what's known as the Hejaj. And uh, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Muslims, they've all been fighting over it uh, for centuries. And of course, by the 16th century, it becomes absorbed and part of the Ottoman Empire. And it stays that way right up until World War I. Ah, the Arab Revolt. That's right, the Arab Revolt, Lawrence of Arabia, as we all know. But today, I don't want to talk about Lawrence. I don't want to talk about Peter O'Toole, your pillars of wisdom. My hero today is a man by the name of Hussein bin Ali al-Hashimi, the Sharif of Mecca. Okay, folks, so this week we're in Arabia. We're talking about a fabulous character known as the Sharif of Mecca, which brings me to the question, what exactly is a Sharif? <laughs> yeah, good question, Mikey. So Sharif's Arabic, obviously. Um, it means noble or high-born, but it's also used for the stewards, um, the sort of sheriffs, if you like, where we, of course, get the word sheriff, sheriff of Nottingham, that kind of thing. So the Sharif of Mecca, he's the steward, the guard for the holy cities, for Mecca, Medina, and also a guard for all the pilgrims who are performing the Hajj. And my hero, as I said, is a man called Hussein al-Hashimi. 
He's part of the Banu Hashim clan. Now, they, you might not know that name, but you probably do know the family name, the Hashemites. Yes, I've heard of the Hashemites, mate, yes. Well, he's one of them, and he can, that means he can trace his descendancy straight back directly to the times of Muhammad um, and to the Prophet himself. Now, Hussein al-Hashimi, he's born in Constantinople in 1854, and he's a studious young man. He masters Arabic. He's educated in Islamic law and doctrine. And he sits in the Sultan's court. He's part of the Sultan's council right up until 1877 when he's given the rank of Pasha, which is like a sort of governor general. Yes, but mate, this is all part of some sort of power sharing sort of thing, isn't it? Well, that's it. That's the problem. Yes, he is a very studious young man, but he's also a bit rebellious. And this is, there is this big power struggle going on constantly um, in Arabia and in the Hijaj region between the two families, the al-Hashimi family and their rivals, the Zaid family. And when Hussein al-Hashimi is growing up, it's the Zaids that have the ascendancy. They've got the ear of the Sultan and it's they are being appointed the Sharif of Mecca, the Emir of Mecca, as often as the al-Hashimis. But... In 1908, with the Young Turk Revolution, um, suddenly all things change in the Sultan's court and the al-Hashimi family suddenly are back on the rise. And Hussein al-Hashimi, he is now granted the title of Grand Sharif of Mecca by Sultan Abdul Hamid himself. He returns to the Hijaz, he learns the way of the Bedouin and he styles himself as the leader of of the whole region. Yeah, but Paul, by this time, aren't we in the middle of that global conflict that we know as World War One? That's right, yeah. We're now in 1916, it's World War One, and the British Secretary of State for War, Lord Kitchener, he appeals to Hussein al-Hashimi because he needs to protect the Suez Canal and the British interests in Egypt. Actually, it's important that you mention that, Paul, because, yeah, the Suez Canal... I mean, look, it's even still important today when we have all this air travel. Remember last year when the, the Ever Given, you know, the, that, that ship yeah. blocked the canal? It, That's it almost, right. It almost broke down the world economy. So the Suez is central to this story. That's right. And so Lord Kitchener, he promises Hussein, he promised, if you can deliver um, the revolt against the Ottomans, who, of course, now allied with the Germans. If you can revolt against them, overthrow them, we will grant you Arab independence, Arab independence for the whole of the Arabic world. I think I've seen this movie. <laughs> right, OK. Yes, yeah, so we've all, obviously, we've all seen the movie, but what that movie doesn't include are some extra key details, particularly about the correspondence. Because, like I said, Lord Kitchener makes the appeal, and you even get the British Foreign Secretary Edward Grey involved, but it's a man by the name of Lieutenant Colonel Sir Henry McMahon. He's the British High Commissioner in Egypt. He writes to Hussein. He makes the promises on behalf of the British government. There's ten letters, five sent um, by each side, and these letters assure Hussein that the reward will be an Arab empire spanning the entire territory between Egypt in the west all the way over to the borders of Persia in the east. Yeah, you know, except for a couple of British possessions like Kuwait or Aden, which they're going to try and hang on to. Everything else will be united under one Arab leader. And Hussein declares himself king of the Arab countries. I'm going to say that's a little premature. 
Yeah, well, look, you're right to be sceptical, Mikey, because almost immediately there are signs that the goalposts are being moved because the US um, diplomatic agency in Cairo, it sends a message uh, back to Washington saying that Britain, France and Russia have agreed to recognise the Sheriff of Mecca as the lawful independent ruler of the Hejaz and to use the title the King of Hejaz, but not King of all the Arabs. It's, it's clear that even at this early stage, mixed messages are being sent depending on who everyone's talking to. But as far as Hussein's uh, concerned, 1916 sees the beginning of the Arab revolt. He's got about 50,000 men. Uh, unfortunately, only about 5,000 of them are actually trained soldiers. He's got a lot of support, um, but the one thing he hasn't really got is weaponry. You know, it, there's probably less than 10,000 rifles. And his sons, he's got four sons. He's got Ali, Faisal, Abdullah and Zaid. Now, so Hussein, he's going to stay at headquarters. He's going to orchestrate the campaign. And these sons, they're going to go out um, on the ground as the commanders if you like, but they haven't got the technical know-how or the, or the machinery that they'll need to wage a full war. And so were all the Arabs united behind him? Not quite, no, because as I said, the Arabian Peninsula is a mixed bag of competing fiefdoms. Um, like we've, we've already talked about the rival Zaid family, and there were other families that were rivals as well. Even Hussein's own sons uh, were worried that, that perhaps he'd bitten off more than he could chew. But as he told Faisal, and this is a quote, a British promise is like gold. No matter how hard you rub it, it still shines. So Hussein, he's sure that with the British on side, that'll be enough to overthrow the Ottomans. And he knows that the key to overthrowing the Ottomans, of course, is the Hejaz Railway, which runs from Damascus through the Middle East right down to Mecca. Um, and the Germans are using that to supply all their Ottoman allies and all the garrisons with modern weaponry. Well, of course, Paul, you were saying earlier how inhospitable it was out there. So that one railway line is incredibly strategically important. And I think I might have seen that in the movie too. <laughs> All right, OK. So it's June the 5th, 1916, and they launched their first attack. So they're trying to blow up the railway, but they've also got to take on the Ottoman garrisons. So Ali and Faisal, they lead the first attack against Medina, the city of Medina, with the Ottoman garrison there. But unfortunately, they're defeated. Um, like I said, they just haven't got the weaponry that they need for f these full-on full, full -on assaults. So I think um, that makes it a funky cold Medina for them. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Paul. I'm just going to ignore, <laughs> ignore that, because they weren't downhearted. On the 10th, they rally their troops, and this time they attack Mecca, which is a larger city, um, and they're able to get in amongst the local populace. They're able to get in over the city walls. And for a whole bloody month, there's street fighting on every corner, in every lane. And this is when the British finally come good. They send over Egyptian troops to help Ali and Faisal. And more importantly, they send over British artillery. Um, and that's enough to assure them victory um, against the Ottomans. The, the garrison um, surrenders. And it's also a propaganda coup as well, because as part of their defence, the Ottomans, they've been chucking around their artillery willy-nilly, completely indiscriminately, and they've done quite a lot of damage to Mecca. Um, so Hussein is able to say, you know, these Ottomans, they're desecrating Islam's holiest city, um, and that, that, again, brings more and more people on his side. Are we going to talk about the movie now, Paul? All right, come on. 
Give, give me Colonel T.E. Lawrence. Tell me what you've got, Mikey. Well, actually, mate, here's one thing I didn't know until recently. He was, in fact, quite literally a bastard. See, when his mother Sarah was just 18, she was sent to Ireland to be the governess for the four daughters of Sir Thomas Chapman. And, yes, they had an affair and a son. And they escaped back to England. And they had four more children, though they never officially married. And Lawrence only found this out after his father died in 1919. Now, we all know that he went over there as an archaeologist, basically. In fact... He never had a single day of battlefield training. Apart from his archaeological achievements, he spent his first two years of the war behind a desk in Cairo. And that's right, Mikey. Look, actually, you know, I'm not saying Lawrence was a bad guy at all. In fact, yeah, as you say, he was an archaeologist. He actually used to work for the British Museum before he got involved in this. So he, as far as I'm concerned, he's one of the good guys. And of course, you know, he's a key element of the Egyptian expeditionary force under Allenby because he did play a key role in that guerrilla campaign that Hussein launches. And, of course, he does team up with Hussein's son, Faisal, and, and the local tribes to, to massive um, successful effects. Most notably, of course, in your movie, uh, the attack on Aqaba, you know, that great port city at the top of the Red Sea and that's surrounded on three sides by deserts and, and mountains um, and Faisal and Lawrence are able to spring the ultimate surprise attack and take the city for the Arabs. I just want to clear one thing up here, Paul, Okay, about the movie. Faisal, that's that's not Omar Sharif, is it? No, no, that's not Omar Sharif. No, Sharif, he plays Sharif Ali. Um, Faisal's actually, that's the one that's played by Alec Guinness. Um, and his, uh, my man, Hussein, you know, who's, he's actually coordinated everything back at headquarters. He's hardly in the film at all. But look, the Arabs have turned their corner. The revolt um, is in full swing. They take the Red Sea ports. They push up through Jerusalem in 1917. And then in 1918, the Arabs are finally able to march into Damascus in the name of Hussein al-Hashimi. And for the first time in a very long time, Arabia is back in charge and the Arabs once again have their own Arab empire. OK, folks, we're looking at the turbulent events in the Middle East near the end of the First World War. There's been the Arab revolt, the Arab world is rising. You've even mentioned the birth of the Arab empire. So what happened? Well, that's uh, unfortunate, Mikey. This is where it all starts to unravel because now, now World War I has been won by the Allies, now suddenly Hussein's not quite so useful to them. Um, and so they say they will only recognise him as the king of Hejaz, which is only part of Arabia rather than the whole peninsula. So my man Hussein, he refuses to ratify the Treaty of Versailles. You know, he protests against the Balfour Declaration and the sykes Peacock Agreement, which essentially establishes the British and French mandates and, of course, lays the foundations for what will eventually become the state of Israel. And at this stage, you've got your man, Lawrence, actually says you know, that Hussein cuts a tragic figure in his way, brave, obstinate, hopelessly out of date, exasperating. But my point, Mike, is, you know, <laughs> what about the British? What about the British double-dealing and the French? You know, Faisal, in fact, he's been promised that he's going to become the ruler of Syria now that he's entered Damascus. But suddenly, he's leaving the country, being forced to leave at bayonet point 
by the French army. It's a classic case of colonialism um, where they change the rules to suit to suit their own needs. And this is where a third important family enters our story, because this is when another rival of the Hashimi clan, the Ibn Sauds, come in with Abdul Aziz Ibn Saud. Now, he's the emir of Nejd, which is another part of Arabia, uh, around what you might know as the city of Riyadh uh, today. Um, and he launches an attack against the Hejaz against Hussein al-Hashemi. Well, I can sort of see that coming because there are political and major religious differences there because the Sauds are, are, are Wahhabists. They are the Wahhabists and they've been uh, rivals of the al-Hashemis for, for decades, centuries really, Mikey. And unfortunately for my man Hussein, they see this as the perfect opportunity to stake their own claim, make their move. You see, the Sauds have been talking to the Allies as well, and they've been suggesting that perhaps it isn't in everyone's best interest to have this new superpower Arab empire. In many ways, they say that could simply become an Ottoman Empire Mark II, you know, with all the problems that that caused. Might it not be best, Ibn Saud angled, you know, if they go back to the old ways with the various parts of the region ruled separately along ethnic, geographic, tribal lines with them... Don't tell me. With them, Saudis ruling a nice big chunk of Arabia. Precisely. But have they got support for this? I mean, on the ground, amongst the tribes. Well, unfortunately for Hussein, they have got a little bit of a card over him because before World War I, Hussein al-Hashimi actually sided with the Ottomans against the Saudis in the conflict. Um, now, sure, he changes sides. Once the Arab revolt starts, he re- rebels against the Ottomans. But before the war, he was seen to be on their side. And so the Saudis say that really he can't be trusted because he's the one who always does the deal with the foreign powers. Even though they're also talking to the British. Right. But you see, with the local chiefs, this plays well. And the Sauds are able to persuade enough tribes that al-Hashimi is getting too big for his boots, that if he wants an Arab empire, he should go <laughs> find one somewhere else. Ah, he's overplayed his hand. Correct. And of course, the British and the French don't take much persuading, as this helps sort out the Sykes-Pickett agreement. So suddenly, not only does Britain withdraw all its promised support for Hussein, the USA, by the early 1920s, they've completely switched sides and then they're sending money and arms to the Ibn Sauds instead. So in 1924, when the Ottoman Empire finally collapses completely and is abolished, Hussein proclaims himself to be the caliph of all Muslims, but the Ibn Sauds persuade enough people not to recognise him and to back their side as they launch their attacks on Mecca, Medina and Jeddah. And unfortunately, these three cities fall very quickly because, of course, all of Hussein's forces are with his four sons up further north in Syria, what's now modern-day Jordan and Iraq. So Hussein is forced to abdicate. His son Ali becomes caliph, but within the year, he's also forced to flee. So I've got to ask the question, mate. Do the British admit they've stabbed Hussein, stabbed the Arab revolt in the back? Well, that's it, Mikey. To be fair, the British do realise they've done wrong and they do realise they need to make amends. Um, they're not going to do anything with Arabia itself. Um, they're going to stay... If the Sauds have won, they're going to recognise them as the victors. But they do make sure that the son, Faisal, if he can't be the king of Syria, they offer him instead the kingdom of Iraq. And the other son, Abdullah, 
he becomes the king of the Transjordan. And in a nice touch, they make sure that Akbar, the city that, of course, so famously fell during the revolt, that's actually transferred out of the Hejaz region politically, and it's included within the borders of this new Transjordan kingdom. So that's where Hussein goes. That's where he goes to take refuge. He, he lives um, with his son Abdullah in Jordan and he actually takes residence in Aqaba itself. But unfortunately, that's too much of a provocation uh, for the Saudis. So they, again, they put more pressure on the Brits. And eventually the only solution is for Hussein al-Hashimi to leave the Middle East, go and live in Cyprus, where he lives out the rest of his life um, until 1930, when he has a stroke at the age of 79, he's allowed to do a mercy dash back to Jordan to die in 1931. Uh, but the nice thing is, Mikey, um, even though he dies in Jordan, he's actually buried in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, you know, the second most holy site in the Islamic world. And there's this amazing outpouring of grief amongst the local Arab populace. Uh, and you see these amazing black and white photos of all the mourners who come to his funeral. Now, Paulie, you've taken us up to the 1930s. Now, this is a very pivotal period for the Middle East because it's round about then something gets discovered. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Mikey. So this is when oil really, really takes off. Um, and then, of course, you know, in World War Two. Middle East, everyone's fighting over it once again, aren't they, with the, the Allies against Hitler's Germany. And then, of course, straight after the war, you've also got the creation of Israel. Which, of course, then leads to the, the colonial withdrawals and, and, and sets the stage for the modern-day Middle East that we're still dealing with today. That's right, Mike. Yeah, all those coups and counter-coups. Look, in 1958, you've got Nasser in Egypt. He does try and pull things back together, and he actually creates the United Arab Republic, whereby Egypt and Syria are joined together as one country. But unfortunately, it's all too late by then, because by now the battle lines are being drawn. So while he puts Egypt and Syria together, Jordan and Iraq, they team up as the Arab Federation to challenge him. And after that, you get the fall of the monarchies. And as evil as many of them were, it has a very long-term destabilising effect. Which, of course, the whole region still feels today. Although there is one ray of hope, Mikey, and that's the country that was originally Transjordan, now we just know as Jordan, probably the only success story in the region. And of course, that kingdom is being ruled by the Al-Hashimis, first of all by Hussein's son and now by his descendants. So the questions I want to ask are what would have happened if Hussein had been allowed to become the ruler of Arabia? What if he'd been in charge of all the oil? Would we be seeing an oppressive regime like the one we have today? What if Faisal, the son, had remained the king of Syria? Would that country have become peaceful and prosperous? And what if the Brits and the US hadn't switched horses to back Ibn Saud? Would that have stopped the spread of the Wahhabi fundamentalism that gave rise to Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden? You mean we'd have Arabia back on one of your maps, not Saudi Arabia. <laughs> That's right, Mikey. And don't forget, many in the Hejaz region actually are still very anti-Saud and they have long memories. I mean, I'm not saying that Arabia is going to splinter anytime soon, but it's hardly what I would call progress. Progress. <laughs> 